This is the Working Class Audio Podcast, Session 109. Working Class Audio. Navigating the world of recording with a working class perspective. Here's your host, Matt Boudreaux. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Working Class Audio Podcast. This is Session 109 you're listening to. It's brought to you by our friends over at Gearslets.com, Focal Monitors, Audio Technica, and Universal Audio. Great to be back with you for another show. Have on a great guest. This guest comes by way of suggestion to us from uh, our WCA alum and old friend, Sean McLaughlin. Uh, And if you haven't heard Sean's interview, that's uh, WCA number uh, 37. So have a listen to that. Sean contacted me and uh, hit me to our next guest, which is uh, Justin Pizzaferrato. Yes, Pizzaferrato. Say that three times fast. Pizzaferrato, Pizzaferrato, Pizzaferrato. Okay, not bad. Pizzaferrato, yeah. The more I say it, the better I get at it. Pizzaferrato, right? So say, say it to yourself in your head. Anyways, Sean texted me and said, hey, I got to introduce you to Justin. And lo and behold, he's going to be on the show. So uh, he's uh, got a studio in the East Hampton, uh, Massachusetts called Sone Lab. He's worked with some pretty cool people, I got to say. He's worked with the Pixies. He's worked with uh, Thurston Moore. Jay Maskus. So he's um, he's coming up here shortly. I just talked to him. He's actually on his way. He was just at the Y and he said, I'll be there in you know, like 20 minutes. So he's coming up. Justin Pizzaferrato on his way from the Y. Yeah. So what do we got going on? Of course, I've told you about Nam. Uh, I will be there. Uh, let's quickly look over at the calendar. So I'm just really clear about when uh, I'm going to be there. I get in on Thursday. I love being there. I know this is nuts. Some people hate going to the NAMM show. I love going to the NAMM show. I love the energy. I like uh, seeing a lot of people. And it's just a good good time. I love to just meander around. And, you know, if you're one who counts steps, if you wear like a Fitbit or one of those type of devices, it's great for that. So 10,000 steps, like easy, no problem. Within like the first couple hours, you'll get your 10,000 steps in. So yeah, I'll be hanging out. going to see, you know, what's new, what's exciting. Look forward to seeing you there. So if you see me, feel free to come on up, say hello, introduce yourself, and we'll, uh, we'll have a chat. And if there's a coffee cart close by, we'll have a coffee as well. You may have seen on the Working Class Audio website, let's go there now, shall we? Working Class Audio. Oh, there it is. Top of the page, WCA Studio Tours, okay? What I'm doing is I'm asking if you've got a studio, let's do this in two parts. Here's the first part. Part one is the recording part. Give us a studio tour. Get your phone out. Get your Android or your iPhone or whatever phone you use and give me a gorilla-style tour of your studio. What do I mean by that? Well, I mean, don't go to great lengths to edit the thing. Just, you know, give us the straight tour Show us some, you know, show us the the layout, uh, maybe talk about its general location. And uh, it's nothing fancy, and it's just a way to get a glimpse into different studio spaces through the eyes of the studio owners, which I always find fascinating. So I've already got a few up there. Uh, I've got Bruce Kappen of uh, Niagara Falls Studio. Um, Bruce has, of course, been on the show. Uh, Mitch Dane of Sputnik Sound, who, of course, works with Vance Powell. So Mitch and... Vance have both been on the show. They've got a, a tour up there. Uh, Robert Smith, of course, early, early um, interview with uh, Robert. He was on number six, actually, uh, DeFi recordings. And I've got some more coming. Uh, Michael Ashby sent me one. And I've got some other people who are uh, 
going to send me tours and I'll post them. So that's part one. Just get it recorded. Part two, I got to figure out where I can like have a, a public box where you can drop them. Um, or, or I tell you what you can do. You can send me a link to, uh, you can share it like uh, you send it or whatever. We transfer, Dropbox, whatever's out there, Google. And uh, give me a link and I'll, you know, check it out. Put it on the website. It'd be nice to get some get some uh, more tours up there. I think that'd be interesting for people. So there you go. Yeah, I'm gonna jump off here and uh, get the Skype ready to go. We're gonna have a conversation with Justin Pizzaferrato. Pizzaferrato. It's a great name. Okay, Justin Pizzaferrato here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. You came by recommendation from Sean McLaughlin, old friend. As I said to you on the phone, if Sean recommends you, then you're in because <laughs> I, I trust Sean. He's a good dude. So, <laughs> he's great. So tell me about Sound Lab. Okay. Well, um, it's a studio in East Hampton that I own and run with a partner named Mark Allen Miller, mm-hmm. who's also a fantastic engineer. Yeah, we both had studios prior to Sound Lab. And both found out that we needed to move into new studios around the same time. So we figured we'd join forces and happened to find a space and a landlord that was very happy to have us run a studio Mm -hmm. in his building. You know, that's kind of how it all got started. The landlord, you say, wants a studio in the building? Yeah, he had just purchased this big old mill building and needed to populate it. And the timing worked out where he was like, a recording studio? That sounds fun. Sure. (laughs) (laughs) and i mean the beauty of it is we were in here before most of the other tenants so basically the thing is if they have a problem with the noise we make it's their problem did you take steps to build it out properly and Mm -hmm. you know do all the things that we do to soundproof etc as much as we could with the budget we had and Ah. that was the other interesting part was the landlord was willing to do the work for us as long as we were okay with signing a 10-year lease, which we were totally fine with. So, 10 years? Yeah, sure. I mean, it, you know, it was a, it was a calculated risk. <laughs> it always is when you rent, isn't it? Yes, definitely. <laughs> so how long have you been in this current space? Almost five years. Another five years left on that lease. Mm-hmm. What were some of the challenges in setting this space up? Well, the, the unique thing about this studio is there are two control rooms. I have one, and so does Mark, and we share a common live room. So part of the challenges were making sure there was enough isolation between each control room and the live room. That was like the biggest challenge. And aside from that, it was just building a space that, you know, would sound good (laughs) without knowing what it would sound like until the construction was done. Yeah, that's interesting. So there's, there's a common live space and then there's two separate control rooms, obviously with mic feeds from the live room into the respective control rooms. Mm-hmm. That's an interesting way to do it with uh, with partners. That way you have your room and he has his room. And mm-hmm. is there ever cause for you to use the other control room? There hasn't been yet. We both have pretty different uh, workflows. Mm-hmm. So this way made the most sense. Um, it was kind of the only way we could really, I think, do it the right way. Interesting. How do you manage the, um, you know, using the studio on a day-to-day basis and booking and not stepping on each other's toes? We have a Google calendar that we share and we just, it's kind of first come first serve. And if there's ever a potential conflict, we always check in with each other. What do you do in the case if like you go to the calendar and you see that your studio partner has booked out like a month? 
Say, uh, well, <laughs> hopefully I've got some mixing to do, you know. <laughs> we each have a uh, small ISO booth that's attached to our control room. So I could do overdubs, he can do overdubs while the other person's using the live room. So it's, wow. it's pretty flexible. And we haven't had any major run-ins. There's been a few tricky things where, you know, I got basics in the evening and <laughs> he's, he's wrapping up a full basic session around 6 p.m. or something, you know, where we have like no time for changeover. So that's happened a couple of times, but it's largely been pretty all right. Do you ever uh, call each other and, you know, say, hey, I'm going to be coming in doing, you know, this, this and that, you know, what, what drum mics do you have set up? Do you want to just leave that set up? Mm-hmm. I mean, we both do things fairly differently, but there are some co- common mics you know, Tom mics or whatever, I'll just say, yeah, leave those on the stand. Don't worry about those. Or sometimes I'll just be like, leave it the way it is and I'll deal with it, you know? Hmm. So it works out pretty well. We're both pretty flexible people, so that helps. So just, I'm sorry, just to reiterate and also add in, um, so independent control rooms, you each have your own ISO booths attached to those control rooms Mm -hmm. and a common live room. Is there any other isolation? Yeah, there's there's like a large drum room that's separate from the large live room. Oh. There's a smaller ISO room, which is largely used for bass. Mm-hmm. And then there's a larger uh, kind of dead ISO room that I usually throw guitar cabs in or acoustic guitar and singer that wants to mm-hmm. track live with a band. Would it be possible like, for you to do a voiceover session when your partner's doing a tracking session? It might not be. <laughs> so the, the biggest problem that we came across when building this studio was the one thing we didn't take into account was the old mill ceilings, you know, they're old mill ceilings. So you can almost kind of see light through them. And so therefore sound comes through them. And it's not that bad. If I'm doing a mix session or like, you know, fairly loud vocals, like in a rock situation in my ISO room, you don't hear anything. But uh, there is a little bit of bleed. When I stop playback, I can hear a little bit of stuff coming from over the ceiling. Okay. So that's a little bit of a, 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 it's kind of annoying, but it's, it's actually fine. We've worked around it plenty. How do you handle marketing of the studio? Is it marketed under one name all the time between the two of you? Pretty much. I mean, we have a Sewn Lab Facebook page and, you know, we each make posts on it and we'll usually put our first initial in parentheses before the post we make. So people mm-hmm. know who it's coming from. But as far as marketing, I mean, sometimes we'll do like a local, you know, like help with a battle of the bands prize or something. But it's kind of, you know, if I work on a record or Mark works on a record that gets a good release, we'll post it and say, hey, this was done here. Maybe what I really meant is how, how are you handling the branding of it? Because I know that at a time in my life, I shared a studio space with two other engineers and we all called the studio three different things based on our own aesthetic and personality. Oh, wow. And that always... You know, that probably was not the best decision. Yeah, that seems like it could be confusing. Very, very <laughs> confusing. Well, this is cool. I, I love the, uh, the the layout, the plan of that. That really allows you as engineers to do your own individual thing, have your space the way you like it, yet still have common spaces, shared spaces, and shared expenses. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it works out really well. The other thing we have is uh, 10 practice spaces down on the other side of the building that we rent out monthly. They're all full, ah. and um, that helps pad our rent nicely. That's great. Yeah, yeah it's, I, it's um, really a cool thing. 
You know, Sharkbite Studios in Oakland, California, has a kind of a similar thing. Ryan, the owner, not only runs Sharkbite, but he also runs Jack London Rehearsal. So, you know, Jack London Rehearsal can offset some of the, uh, you know, maybe the slow times. Although Sharkbite's been super busy lately, so it's not been an issue. But Mm -hmm. do, do you find that your clients from your rehearsal space are also clients for the studio? Some of them, yeah. A, a good amount of them are. Some of them kind of record themselves in their space, and we're totally into that. But uh, there's a decent amount that come over here to record. Do you offer a particular discount to those who are in the uh, rehearsal space? No. We, we try to keep our rate, like, I mean, we do keep our rate very, you know, consistent. Just That's good. In, in the interest of being fair to everybody. What's, what is the rate? It's 500 a day, a day for a 10-hour day or 50 an hour. Right on. Okay. So I also looked up some of the people that you've worked with. You've worked with some very cool people, Jay Maskus and Dinosaur Jr. and the Pixies. And Tell me about life before uh, your current studio situation. I was living in Boston when I started doing this, interning at a studio called Woolly Mammoth Sound with David Minahan. He's the owner and kind of engineer there. Um, there's some other engineers that are great too. And at a certain point, David gave me a set of keys and said, books and bands. So I started getting out there and meeting bands and, you know, trying it out. And I know I freelanced for a very long time until I moved to Western Mass. And at that point, I said to myself, there's not a lot of studios out here. And I think I need to figure out a situation for myself. Mm -hmm. So my first studio was in an old bank in Greenfield, Mass. It was literally an old bank, you know, with like marble floors and you know, it was pretty pretty intense. Did it have a vault? It did indeed. <laughs> it was a pretty rough setup, you know, as far as like gear and wiring and all that. It was a very like, you know, kind of a bare bones situation, but it was really cool and it had a great vibe. It really helped me get a good start with, you know, freelancing out here in Western Mass because the rent was low, my overhead was low. It was it was a good situation. Tell me about some of the costs in those earlier places, like the uh, bank. The bank was like, I think we had like an agreement with the owner that he some he he was like a really big music fan and he would bring us sessions and say, you know, if you record this, like you're good on rent this month. And Oh my god. Yeah, we'd be like, okay, you know, spend a weekend with this cool band, you know, doing basics or whatever mixing. So that happened pretty often. But I think our like rent agreement was like $250 a month. Yeah. <laughs> for a for a bank building? Yeah, I mean, we had like a spot upstairs that wasn't the main big grand room, but I mean, the bank it was largely vacant, and we had free reign over the whole bank. You know, there was like almost no conflict. We had a baby grand piano in that giant marble floored room. We'd put a uh, you know Leslie's in the vault for isolation. It was it was pretty cool. When, when you're shopping for a, a place to set up a studio. What goes into your thought process beyond, obviously, low rent? Um, I mean, I think the most important thing is, like, flexibility, being able to make as much noise as we want anytime we want without any conflict from neighbors in the building or outside of the building. I see. And so when you move into a space, you're not necessarily looking to sink a ton of money into soundproofing on a deep level. I, I, well, I know that to do it right, it just I, – I couldn't afford to. Okay. You know, so you're trying to work within a pre-existing situation, therefore choosing a building that's not going to have a conflict sonically with the neighbors. Right. Okay. Yeah, that's pretty much that, – that was our 
that was kind of our criteria when we were building Sone Lab. And then, you know, when our landlord said, well, I'll help you guys with the build, we realized that that we would be able to isolate certain rooms, you know. So the in, in Sone Lab, the current situation, was it just a blank slate or was there any anything there? It was like an enormous empty room mm-hmm. that uh, – and there was like junk all over it from the previous tenants that had to be – you know, there was a lot of demolition involved and a lot of like removing these this heavy machinery that I don't even know what it was for. So the first step was clearing the space mm-hmm. and completely emptying it. And then I think the second step was pouring concrete. There's concrete on our um, for our control rooms. I think the whole studio is on concrete with fracture lines between each room just to mm-hmm. stop the vibration. You know, again, like we were working with a pretty tight budget. So these are the kinds of things we were like, this is the best I think we can do, you know? Is that the term? Fracture lines? Is that what they call it? I don't, I think maybe. Okay. <laughs> I might I don't have just know. made I, that I, up. Th- no, that's, well, you've sold me on it. I'm convinced. Fracture lines, <laughs> sure, of course. So tell me a little more about prior to Sone Lab. You know, I freelanced for a long time around Boston at Pete Weiss's studio in Vermont. It's called Verdant. Oh, yeah. I know Pete and, Weiss. And, um, yeah, Pete's great. Verdant's great. I love that place. I actually helped him move his Neve console to Verdant. So I've I've known him for a long time. I've been doing sessions there for a long time. So between like Woolly Mammoth and Verdant, I would, you know, kind of work at one of those two places depending on the project. And then shortly after moving to Western Mass, I moved into the space in Greenfield, the old bank, and also met Jay Mascus and started working with him out of his studio. And for listeners who don't know who Jay Mascus is, this is Jay Mascus of Dinosaur Jr. fame. Tell me about that, about working with Jay. Yeah, it's uh, it's great. We've been working together for, I think, 10 years now. I had heard through the grapevine that he had a studio, and I knew some people that had worked there over the years. So I um, went to jmaskus.com, clicked on the contact section, and uh-huh. uh, just said, hey, you know, I'm new to the area. Uh, I'm a freelance engineer, and I'm just looking for some studios to work out of. And his management wrote back and said, Jay actually needs an engineer right now, and he'd like to meet with you. Yeah, you know, it's interesting that um, our last guest uh, on episode 108, Chris Montgomery, he told the story of going to the bitter end. He came from Glasgow, Scotland, and he said he dropped a resume off looking for some bar work to sustain him while he interned at a studio. And lo and behold, they were like, hey, we actually need a live sound guy. And your resume indicates that. So come on board. That's great. Let's talk about that for a sec. Time and time again, in many episodes, there's been uh, many a guest who have just done what some of us might be a little uh, intimidated by. And that's just picking up the phone or contacting somebody directly or just being a little... I don't want to say aggressive, but a little a little more forward, you know, mm-hmm. in contacting people. What are your thoughts on that? I mean, I think you probably have nothing to lose by reaching out to somebody that you might want to work with. And, you know, the, yeah. the worst that's going to happen is they're, they're going to say no. Yeah. They're not going to say, man, that guy, Justin, was crazy, you know, <laughs> and tell everybody in the world that that, that person's crazy. You know, I think, it's, I think it's a good thing to do because, you know, if they say yes, then... That's awesome, you know? I mean, it, it really worked for me, I guess. Obviously, because you worked with Jay for the last 10 years, right? Yeah. You continue to work with him? Do you continue to go to his place? Yeah, we finished, uh, we worked on a Dinosaur Junior record um, about a year ago, actually. And that was released in September, I think. Mm-hmm. So I'm still working with him. I think he has another engineer now that um, that's there probably a little more often than I am, just because I'm here at Sone Lab so much. Mm-hmm. What do you think... 
about this concept. I, I always found that when I had uh, a dedicated studio that I was, you know, where I was in your similar uh, situation, I always felt like I needed to, you know, needed to pay the rent, obviously. So any work that came in, I brought to that studio and never, ever entertained the idea of going to other studios. I always was trying to bring people to my place. What are your thoughts on that? How do you deal with that for yourself? I, it depends on the situation. I mean, my preference is to work at my home base because mm -hmm. I'm familiar with all of my tools. I love the rooms here and the flexibility here. And I know what works and what doesn't work you know, as far as gear. And, you know, sometimes when you freelance, you go into a studio and it'll take you like, you know, six hours to set up for basics because you want to use something and it doesn't work or you're not familiar with it. So you got to try a couple of different things, you know, or you're kind of at the mercy of the assistant who mm -hmm. might work at a different pace than you. So I like to work at home base, but you know, like a year ago I did a record with Parquet Courts and we had worked together here at Sone Lab. Prior to that, they decided they wanted to go to upstate New York for two weeks to a residential studio because they wanted to, um, they just wanted to live there and kind of write and record the record together. Mm -hmm. it, it was a great work opportunity, and I really liked working with those guys. So I said, yeah, I'm going to do it, you know. Yeah, the studio will take a small hit because I won't be there, but but it's a good thing in the end, you know. But you're still bringing in income. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. So you're married, mm -hmm. correct? Yes. And uh, you have a new newborn baby. Well, he's, he's uh, two, almost three now. Oh, okay. Far from newborn. Tell me about the transition from your recording world before your kids or your kid, your child, and, and the transition into that, that world. How did you navigate that? Good question. So in the months, maybe year prior to that, my wife started doing my scheduling for me and she got me on a pretty manageable schedule with my clients where I would work 11 a.m. to 9 p.m. So 10 hour days and try to keep it during the week and try not to do weekends. It was really hard for me to wrap my head around that at first, but my wife is really good with managing that stuff. And, you know, she was great in that situation. So she helped me transition with that. And then once our kid was born, you know, we were both like exhausted and busy and working. And so I had to handle booking um, all on my own again. And I just kept on the same thing. And I, now I try to work Monday through Thursday, 10 hour days. And I have one day off. That's just me and my kid. And then the weekends are family time. And of course, you know, every now and again, a band just cannot do weekdays. So I'll bend, you know, but I largely try to keep a regular schedule. Do you feel like you miss out on a lot of potential sessions because of the lack of availability on the weekends? Every now and again, I do. Mm -hmm. But I think mostly it, it's, it's working. I'm finding more and more... On the weekends, I find that I don't go into my my mixing and mastering room at all. Mm -hmm. I just I I don't even walk in the room. And it's at first, you know, it's it's a strange feeling, isn't it? I mean, you're yeah. used to you're used to like odd hours, and you're used to like working all the time, whenever you know, mm -hmm. whenever grabbing whatever you can. But in a strange way, I'm curious if you'd agree with this. Do you find that if you get kind of more structured about things and say, I do, these are my hours. I work this time and I cost this much. End of story. Mm -hmm. Do you find that the work still comes in? And because yes. I know that some people are like, oh man, I, you know, if I can't charge that much more and, and, oh, I can't, if I don't work, if I'm not available 24 hours a day, seven days a week, I'm never going to survive. Yeah. I mean, that was, I was so scared that that was going to happen. 
you know, mm-hmm. when, I, when, when I started having a more, more uh, consistent schedule, I was like terrified. I was like, my business is going to fall apart. You know, all this hard work that I put in, working odd hours and, you know, marathon sessions, I thought it was just going to be done. But people totally respected that. And it's actually amazing. The other cool thing is I think sessions are much more productive this way. In 10 hours, you can get a lot done. You know, these marathon, like 15, 16 hour days, you're taking these breaks, you know, really long breaks. You go out for dinner for two hours and, you know, just being in one place for 10 hours, you just, you're working the whole time and, you know, you take a five or 10 minute break here and there, but everything becomes more focused. And I found that just the days are much more productive. And I think Mm -hmm. in the end, the same amount of work, if not more, is getting done. Yeah, it seems like when you get more structured, somehow the clients respond in kind. They they get more structured. Would you agree with that? Definitely. Let's talk about work ethic. Mm -hmm. Let's do a (laughs) self-examination. What do you think of your own work ethic? Uh, I think I have a great work ethic. (laughs) I, I try to be punctual. I mean, I'm always at the studio between 40 and 20 minutes before the band shows up. And I'm, you know, if I know I'm doing basics, then I'm either writing my input list or I'm putting mics on stands or cleaning up from the, from, you know, a disaster control room, you know. I'm just always busy, always doing things. And I think it's pretty important to be as on top of things as you can be, you know, take notes. Just, you always want to be on the same page as your clients. You don't, you never want to be like, oh, uh, you know, I don't understand what you're talking about because I wasn't paying attention, you know, (laughs) or like, you know, uh, it's, you know, a lot of times a band will come in and do, uh, basics and then vocals for like eight of the 10 songs and they come back a week later and just having written down everything I use, taking pictures of the settings, we can get right back to where we were. I, I think that's great, but I find that sometimes that slows my workflow down with the band do you have a, a way that you do, do you just write fast or do you, how do you take notes and kind of keep the session flow going while all that's, you know, while you, trying to, while trying to capture all that? I'm usually, usually during takes, I feel like I can kind of, I guess, split my brain in two at this point And I could have one hand on my enter key to make a marker if I hear something that needs to be fixed. And the other hand writing down, okay, we're using the U67 through the whatever preamp, through the whatever compressor, you know, and then and then when the band comes in and we're talking about the performance or getting ready to comp, I'll just take a second and take pictures. Mm-hmm. So I just try to keep working <laughs> and not slow things down and say, hey guys, hold on a minute, I got to write all this down. I mean, occasionally I'll have to do that, you know. You know, uh, I'm a, I've got a copy of uh, Recording the Beatles, the Brian Kehu book. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with that, but, mm-hmm. you know, these days with the way... I mean, not all sessions are the same in, in, in this way, but not everybody takes notes and not everybody documents. So that, that data collection process for a, a recording project, I think it's, I think more than ever, it's pretty uh, advantageous on everybody's part because you never know what's going to happen to a record yeah, or, or a song. So having, you know, taken notes about, the setup, obvious, for obvious reasons. The, the re, I assume the reason you're taking those notes, obviously, is for the next time you meet with the band and you want to repeat that setup. That there's no like, what did we use? Yeah. But also just for the sake of, I don't know what you'd call it, um, just documentation. Mm-hmm. Because what if what if the song or the record blows up and you know there's all kinds of 
materials that people like to have access to. Yeah, I mean, I think it's, you know, I, I, I've never really thought of that aspect of it. And that's really cool. I love just having an archive of what I've used for every session. I think it's just fun. You know, it's fun to look back on sometimes, but mostly it's for practical reasons, you know, and it's also just to keep track of things in the middle of a session. If, you know, if a mic stops working, rather than having to count, you know, this, it's like, I know that that's input number 18 that went down. Let me retrace. All right. That's, that was my, my signal path for that. Let me trace that now. Rather than scratching my head and saying, was that the 1176 or the, you know, whatever, I don't, I don't remember. I'd have to think about it. I have to look at my patch bay. Mm-hmm. You know? It's just nice to have it all written. It makes everything so easy. Let's talk a little bit about productivity. And what I mean by that is, what are the things you do and use to run your business, to keep your business going, and to, uh, you know, whether it's, we already talked about your Google Calendar, of course, with your mm-hmm. studio. What are, do, are there any other tools that you employ? I have a great accountant. She's really, really helpful. I just, like, you know, owning a business or being freelance, you have to deal with crazy tax stuff. And having someone to help me with that is like inv- invaluable because it can really get away from you. It's like no fun to think about. It's kind of the worst thing, you know. Mm-hmm. But um, so that's that's really helpful. That keeps me on point. It keeps like my budget manageable from month to month, you know, in all ways. And I think that's a really important thing. Sounds like you have a pretty firm grip on the financial matters of your business. Would Would you agree? Yeah. I mean, I, I'm, I'm like always, you know, I look back at my early days of doing this and, you know, sometimes you'd go like almost a month without doing a session. <laughs> so I feel like that's ingrained in me and I just have to be super on top of everything and super careful of mm-hmm. managing all that. So there might be a little paranoia involved. <laughs> so I wanted to ask you a little bit about investment in yourself in terms of uh, education mm-hmm. and staying on top of, you know, learning new things, what are your, where do you go to stay on top of ideas and pick up new ways of doing things? How do you educate yourself on a continual basis? You know, I try to do something different in every, th- every session I do. And sometimes mm-hmm. it's just like something I read about or something I thought of, mm-hmm. and I really want to put it to practice. And, you know, strikes and gutters, <laughs> sometimes it's awesome. Sometimes it's like a throwaway track or whatever. So there's that. And then I've been really fortunate to work with some really awesome engineers. I've worked with John and Yellow a lot uh, over at, at Jay Mascus's house. And mm-hmm. I've learned so much from John. It's Any session I've done with John has been invaluable. He's such a professional. He's so good. And he's very organized. It's So that's it's really inspiring for me. And I, I end up learning and taking away so much from those sessions. Um, recently, I mixed some tracks that M- Mitch Easter recorded. Ah, and Mitch. Yeah, it was so cool, man. I mean, Mitch is amazing. He and I have been like email pen pals since the session. And he's so cool. I learned so much just from mixing his tracks. So that was a really fortunate thing. I was really excited about that. It was a great project. And it was so well done on Mitch's Mm -hmm. behalf that it was, yeah, I learned a lot from that. Does he still have the studio called the Fidelitorium? He does. Mm. Maybe you could email Mitch and ask him to be on my show. Oh, yeah, I will. Yeah. Be great. Definitely will. Do you have a mentor? When I was first starting and interning at Woolly Mammoth Sound, David Minahan was my mentor. I would say I learned a lot. Okay, I learned a lot from that guy. You know, the the biggest thing I learned is like how to be cool in a session. You know, to work a ten hour or twelve hour day and and still be cool. You know, and and still have the band's attention and 
to get along with everyone and to be flexible from project to project, you know, it's, it's, I, I don't even know how the guy does it. You know, he's amazing. And he also got great sounds too. And, you know, he had such a great collection of equipment and I think it's even, it's exploded since then that I, I got to see a lot of cool stuff in his studio and was exposed to a lot. So that was a really, really important thing for me. Justin Pizzaferrato here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Time to take a sponsor break with Audio-Technica. Uh, I've mentioned it before in the last show, and I'll mention it again. At NAM, I will be, uh, of course, meandering about, and I always, of course, take time to spend a chunk of time at the Audio-Technica booth and go see my friend Gary Boss. Gary can uh, give us the lowdown on all things Audio-Technica because he pretty much knows the products backwards and forwards and can tell you every single detail about them, which is always great when you uh, have a chat with Gary because if you ask him about something, he really can actually tell you and he knows what he's talking about. So shout out to Mr. Boss. Yeah, so if you're not coming to NAM, of course, go to audio-technica.com and have a look around. Microphones, headphones, turntables, some great stuff there. And you know I'm a big fan. Real working class stuff. So that's it. Let's get back into it with Mr. Justin Pizzaferrato. Pizzaferrato. Right on. Justin Pizzaferrato here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. When starting up a studio, when it comes to making decisions about gear and how to outfit a studio, was there a criteria that you used, you know, to say, I'm when it when it comes to choosing gear? Like, what do you think is important in setting up a studio in, the, in this day and age? I think my answer would be different than a lot of other people's answer. But I, I, to me, the, the main thing in my studio is my console because everything goes through it all the time. And, you know, I've worked in some studios that don't have consoles. They just have like a control station. Mm-hmm. And it's really hard for me to, to work as quickly as I normally work. You know, dialing in, he- in headphone mixes you know, adjusting playback, all of that. Like my hands are on the faders and on the, the sends and all that. So for me, it was always like having a console that worked, you know, mm-hmm. that was really important. My first console wasn't very good sounding, but it was a great, you know, it allowed me to, it was my workstation, you know. So I started to buy and build mic preamps. And, mm-hmm. um, and then my, you know, the sound of the recordings just got better and better. I felt that that was pretty important. What kind of console do you have in the new studio? I have an MCI JH636. Yeah, I would I would agree. Um, having run a studio that was based around a large variety of mic preamps into a Pro Tools rig with a control surface, I I do like the flexibility of a console. So, like when I work over at Sharkbite Studios or Twenty Fifth Street Studios in Oakland, having the console and having everything in a central spot. Uh, and not having to worry about patching in a ton of mic preamps and just using the built-in preamps on the board is just makes life a lot easier for my workflow. And mm-hmm. I guess that's it. Sounds like you kind of have a similar experience. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, I, I still use a lot of external mic preamps because prior to having the MCI, I had a Tac Scorpion, which mm-hmm. you know it got the job done. <laughs> um, but the mic preamps, I really did not like. So over the years, I started buying and building mic pre's, and and I still I really like them. So I'm not really ready to give them up. And I think some of them are probably better than the MCI's mic preamps. Interesting. Hmm. So I'm still doing the external pre thing. Mostly, I, I use the console for bussing. Like if I have two or three mics on a guitar amp, I'll bus them to one track because 
it just makes sense to do that. Sometimes I'll do it with kick and snare too. Um, I don't know even how people bus things together if they have just like a, a DAW workstation thing. Maybe they don't, and they just have like a million tracks. Pretty much just create two aux inputs right, and feed those to a common track. Yep. I usually do that when I start mixing. If I have... If I don't want to commit the two mics together, then I usually will then, yeah, open up an aux and send them both to that aux channel. Mm -hmm. But I really, I just like to keep my track count down, I guess. When it comes to gear and money, what's your philosophy there? I think, you know, I know some people that really are okay with just using their credit card and buying exactly what they want. And there are, there have been so many times over the years that I wish I could do that, but I'm just, I don't want to have any more debt than I already have. So so my philosophy has always been like, if there's a hole in your gear collection, fill it with what you can afford or wait and save up for that thing that you absolutely need and get the best thing possible. Um, I started building those uh, Cappy mic preamps, those API um, clones. And I mean, they were dirt cheap to buy the kits for. And they were a lot of fun to build. And I ended up building six of them. Mm -hmm. And I love them. I want to build more, actually. But I have so many external mic pre's, I don't need more. <laughs> <laughs> Um, gear sluts is a great resource for, you know, if I'm like curious about a piece of gear or if I'm looking to buy something or just want to see what like not sound on sound, but like users like myself have to say about it, you know, mm -hmm. I'll, I'll always browse and I try not to take things too seriously because some people get really fired up <laughs> one way or the other about something, you know? Oh yeah. I that's, mean, people, people in gear are just such strong opinions. And I think that's just the nature of the whole format of a message board, you know, is sure people are just like, here, I'm going to let it all out, you know, <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to tell you everything I think and more. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. I'm, I mentioned it before on the show. I'm a big fan of the, the gear sluts classifieds. I love just, mm -hmm. you know, even if I'm not buying, yep, it's same. always interesting just to like cruise and look at all the gear and go, Oh, that's what people are selling that for. Hmm. Totally. I do that all the time. So back to the topics of uh, education, mentoring, learning, and continuing to, to grow as an audio professional. Uh, any other things that you like to do? You know, I mean, I listen to a lot of records, and sometimes I try to, like, uh, reverse engineer certain things that I'm hearing. And, you know, I try to quiz myself, like, oh, what, is, what, what kind of console do I, did they maybe do this on, you know? <laughs> you know, I'll just hear a sound, and I'll be like, that's really cool. That kind of sounds like this, and I have those pieces of gear, so let me try that, you know? Yeah. So so that that's that's pretty cool and gee imagine that listening <laughs> to records huh Yeah I know what a concept <laughs> Sometimes I I think you know I'm speaking only for myself sometimes I realize wow you know I've just been listening to my client stuff I need to listen to somebody else's stuff It's it's awesome <laughs> It's a lot of fun Mus yeah. Music rules Well man this has been super cool to to hear about your world and um I appreciate you coming on and telling us about What's going on in your life? Cool. Thanks for having me. Oh, it's a pleasure. All right, man. Well, thanks again. Thank you. Thanks so much. That was really cool. All right. Chat with you later. All right. See you, man. There you have it. Justin Pizzaferrato here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Very enjoyable to chat with Mr. Pizzaferrato. So, um, yeah, it's been great. But we are out of time. So let's thank him. Thanks, Justin Pizzaferrato, for coming on. And, of course, I want to thank my crew. Cliff Truesdale, Chuck Smith, Cole Williams. I want to thank our sponsors, GearSluts.com, Universal Audio, Focal Monitors, and Audio Technica. And thanks again for listening. I appreciate the time you take to listen to me ramble. So until then, take care. Hey, I know many of you are aware of this, but for those of you that aren't aware, 
working class audio sponsors the forum over at gearspace.com called Audio Life. And quite simply put, it's a place where audio professionals can go to talk with other audio professionals about things other than audio gear, including life hacks, work-life balance, health and hearing loss. You know, if you want to talk with other audio professionals who can identify with what your lifestyle is like and how it relates to things going on in the world outside of audio, this is a great place to go and check out. So head on over to gearspace.com, check out Audio Life. Many of the same topics that we discuss here on the show on Gearspace.com. So check that out. 